Hi, and welcome to a new episode of Building Resilience. Is organizational resilience always desirable? If it is, how can you and your organization build it practically? So far, we have discussed this topic mostly from a research angle. Today, we will be pragmatic and provide a tool, a framework, and a methodology to help you decipher the current level of resilience and allow you to take definitive actions to absorb shocks and proactively adapt. My guest today, Heidi Askin, an INSEAD EMBA graduate and a passionate of resilience and complexity, set out and succeeded in building a framework, an assessment, and the subsequent intervention to do just that. She has already applied it successfully in her role as Director of Culture and Transformation at Bell. So, grab a coffee and enjoy our conversation. And of course, if you appreciate the content, don't forget to like and subscribe. Hi Heidi, and welcome to Building Resilience. I'm so happy to be hosting you. I'm very happy to be here with you. Looking forward to this. Same here. Heidi, let's just start with a few things about you. U.S. to France. How did they, that come about? Oh, goodness. What a story. Well, I can tell you that I have um, a bit of a career history, mostly in marketing and consumer research. So I was always focused on following the trends and how people's habits change and what informs their decisions. And I did that for the French company in the U.S. And an opportunity came up to move to the home office. And I looked at my husband and said, hmm, what do we do? And of course, he says, on y va. Here we go. So we, we took the leap and we moved to France. And now we've been here six years. And my career has since evolved since then in the same company. And I've just recently finished a master's, an executive master's at INSEAD. I'm coaching and consulting for change. Is INSEAD where the interest for resilience started or did it start earlier? I have to admit, it really started with my French, uh, my French company experience, which really informed that. The great thing about the program is it gave you a chance and a platform to explore questions you have, talk to other informed people about the topic, and start to work on certain aspects of organizational uh, theory and behavior. And at the time, I was experiencing a radical transformation of a very American uh, pragmatism in my, my, my working culture, bringing that into a 150-year-old French company who had some very, uh, I would say, solid and, and almost rigid habits and ways of working. And so it was really about how can I help this company evolve? And we happened to be going through a massive transformation in the organization at that time. And so it raised a lot of questions of how do you help a system go through a massive disruptive event when it's not something that they're used to doing or that they welcome? Where did you find the courage to do it? That's a good question. I think it helps to uh, to have a space and time and place in which to ask big questions. And the master's program provided that for me. And so it allowed to give me the safety to experiment and explore something I probably wouldn't have dared to do on my own. And there's a great analogy there because often when you're faced with difficulty, finding ways to support yourself, it is exactly the right thing to do. And in this case, the program gave me the space and place and time to really uh, take on a a really interesting question I had, given that I was sitting in a company that was experiencing a lot of change and wasn't sure how to do that. So it was a really great time and place to explore. Can you tell us about the question? 
Yes. So in the case of uh, my company, but not only, I really feel like so many companies are faced with uh, the external changes that are happening around us. We know that the technology has radically changed the way that people interact, the way people communicate, the way people shop, the way people play. Nearly everything has changed in the last <laughs> decade based on, on those very basic functions of human life. And yet organizations have not seemed to move along in the same pace as the rest of the world. And so this is kind of an interesting question I was asking myself of, okay, how do you help an organization, especially larger or more rigid ones, to adapt to the world around them that is changing faster and faster? And so this was the core question that started my curiosity and seeing if there's a way to actually build an organization's resilience. What uh, fascinated me, and uh, I, I read all the definitions, but somehow you found a blind spot in the definitions for organizational resilience, which was mostly the human aspect yes. of, of resilience. Yeah. So tell me a bit about that and how you discovered that. Yeah, absolutely. So as I, I mentioned to you, I was surprised at how little research had already been done on organizational re resilience when I started looking at this question. And so that's when I felt I needed to look for other areas of inspiration to help land it. Because when you look at organizational resilience, much of the research today focuses on the hard elements, the aspects that can be measured, that can be monitored, that have a KPI attached. This is where the comfort zone of organizations are today. And so it was a lot around asset um, allocation, business planning, you know, dynamic resources, but it was really in this space of the hard aspect of business and business strategy. And yet at a fundamental level, we all know that, that organizations are really made up of people. <laughs> And somehow organizational resilience was absent of that aspect. All the aspect of the psychological and the human needs of how do I accept that my reality is changing? How do I accept that I need to maybe try things differently? And how do I gain comfort and support to dare to experiment and, and do something new? And somehow uh, in the current research today, it was really uh, missing this emotional and human component that I was sure was important. You developed a new definition of organizational resilience. Mm. What yes. is it? Yes. So I will tell you that the default when you talk about organizational resilience or just the word resilience in general, people assume that it's about bouncing back. You know, resilience means that you got knocked down and you bounce back. The more that I looked into this topic, the more that I realized that it's not just about bouncing back. It's also about not being knocked down as hard the first time. It's about being able to both resist the shocks and the things that can happen to your business, to your, to your environment, but also be able to proactively seek where are those opportunities to adapt and evolve on my own in order to better position myself to, to fit in the world that I find. And so I was amazed at that, that the context matters so much uh, of, of kind of how you are resilient really depends on, on what the context of the situation. And yet so much of the research really focused on a very static uh, version of business, of strategy and resource allocation that was the typical financial and economical view of the world and completely missed the more um, communications and, and human element that was so critical to actually moving people through a difficult situation.
more on a philosophical level, do you think resilience is always desirable or? Yeah, no, I, I would honestly argue that resilience is always desirable because okay. I think the, the world will continue to be a complex and uncertain place and there's nothing more certain than change itself. And so I think knowing that this is the world that we now live in and we now operate in, I think resilience is about having confidence and tools and an awareness to how to move people through that and adapt to that ever-changing landscape, which is a, a bit of a daunting challenge. And I think it's something that, that companies aren't talking enough yet about, and yet we're experiencing all the time. And the only other aspect I would say is that, as I mentioned to you, the definition for me is both about being able to resist shocks and absorb things that happen to you, but also to proactively adapt to the worlds you find. And what I would say is resilience is always desired. But whether you want to be in the resistant part of it or building the adaptability part of it, now that's where the context matters a lot. And I can give you an example. So in my company today, there are some business units that are running really well, but are lacking some growth, lacking some innovation, lacking the willing to dare and innovate. That's where you need a bit more on the adaptability side. And there are certainly some leaders who are more capable of pushing that aspect of resilience in that context in order to renovate, transform, and put them on a new strategic vision or a new plan. There's also BUs where actually they have a strategic vision, but they're missing some of the fundamentals. There's still a small business unit that just needs to find levers of growth and, and to build the fundamentals. That requires a more resistant approach towards building the business, where you're focused on continuity of priorities, building the strong fundamentals, and likely is a different leader profile that might be the best person for that job. And so what I would say is resilience is always desirable, but how you get there, that's what will change. I'm curious, did you start your new role as a director of culture and transformation together with your interest for uh, resilience and, uh, and the studies at INSEAD? It's actually a very happy, uh, happy story to say that I was in. A, uh, I was the director of strategy for the, this uh, international manufacturer, a 3.5 billion dollar company, and in that view, I was able to see lots of opportunities and try to get the organization to move. And it was often that that would be frustrating for me because the opportunities would be there, but we would not be able to mobilize, and we didn't have the internal agility I wanted. So it was kind of through this topic that I started to wonder: How do you help a system be more resilient, more flexible, more adaptable? Uh, because my current company was much stronger on the fundamentals and the, and the resistance and the strong equity and assets. So how do we move on adaptability? And so through my research, I've started these conversations and, and was able to get interest from the leaders on this topic and start to to pique a little bit their curiosity about how we might be able to behave differently. And it's true that at that time, um, it, it was before COVID when the whole world had to awaken its resilience in order to adapt very quickly to an external force. And so they were already interested in working on that. And at that time, there was a change in the organization that enabled me to, um, to be offered this position of director in culture and transformation for the group. Were they open from the very beginning or did you have to help them open up. It's not an easy topic. It's not easy to look inside and yeah. recognize where your failures are. Absolutely. It's not easy for two reasons. One, it's ambitious. You know, when you take a systems view to anything, trying to see the whole system and, and, and find its opportunities, uh, a lot of people stop listening. But that's actually, there's such great insight when you try to look at the system as a whole. 
What I would say is that some leaders were not that open to it initially, but I found a champion. And this is often how it happens in a lot of companies. I found an executive sponsor who was really interested in the work, very supportive. And with that one leader who allowed me to explore and start the work, uh, the best way to do it was I actually started interviewing my dissenters. So the people that were not quite fully aligned, I did my deep interview with them. And sure enough, the conversation really opened their eyes to the topic and, and made them curious. And so much of this process is about opening, being open to the outside, being aware of, of, of potentially new ways of doing things and trying to raise their awareness to the system itself, which when you're in it, it's hard to see. And so it was really through these interviews, it was also a bit the, the method and the, uh, and the outcome that allowed me to, to move them on the topic. And of course, at the end, uh, they were quite, uh, quite aligned with the, with the idea of resilience and the idea of building it by the end of the, of the project. And so that was a bit of a journey we went on together, but it shows that even though this is not a vocabulary or vernacular that people are used to, if you can help make it concrete, even something as difficult to hold on to as organizational resilience can become something people want to work on. How big is the company? So we're 13,000 people and we have uh, 30 different uh, business units around the world and it's based in France. And uh, it's old? It's over 150 years old. It's a family-owned company to this day with a family-led CEO and a family-owned board. So it's very much uh, an interesting dynamic already uh, considering that. And uh, we make uh, food products, healthy snacks and meal solutions. And um, the people that you've interviewed, you've interviewed around 20 if I remember exactly. well. Mm -hmm. Were they all executive level? Yes, I chose to remain at the executive level, but I, I really intentionally chose a, a pretty wide dispersion of where they were in the company, what role, what function, and what country they were from. And so that really helped because it's true that the culture of any company is translated differently through uh, different places and in different eyes. And so that was an intentional part of my point to make sure it was more globally representative, even though it was a qualitative study. One of the issues that I always find when I talk with companies about values is that most of the old companies, most of the corporations, they have them plastered on the wall. But if you ask the employees what the values are, they even forget that they're on the wall and they yes. can read them. Right? Yeah. Is this the case of your company or not so much? They were already enacted and they already knew what the values of the company were and behaving as such. Well, it's extremely timely you say this because uh, our company has had um, the same values for a long time, given the, the familial ownership that remains to this day, and actually have been very clearly stated and, and I would say really adopted well since 2014, that in, in the values of dare, care, commit, which still to this day remain quite relevant. What's been interesting is that through this process of being more vulnerable and open to looking at our culture, and being a, a little bit more in transparent communication, which is a big part of resilience as well, we were able to say, you know what, behind each of these values, there's strengths and there's shadows. And so for the first time, we just recently did a qualitative study where we looked at the values and said, how do people understand them? How do they experience them? What do they really think are behind? And now we're using that in order to clarify what are the behaviors we expect behind these values to make it even more obvious and even more evident to everyone. What is it that we are expecting behind those and how can those become a more um, more of a tool in order to to look for the right candidate and promote the right person and encourage the right feedback and behavior so the guiding values have been important forever but they've never been as explicit as they are now that's the big change we're making now i like the shadow part oh and it's so true i'll give you an example yeah. let's take one so dare care commit 
behind the word care, we have a company that has always believed in a more humane and social model, taking care of their employees, being a place where you invest in people's growth and development. So that's all great. That's really good stuff. And everybody wants to be a part of a company that says those things. The sneaky shadow of care is that when you're in the care, you care a lot about the relationships. You care a lot about your reputation and the people around you. And that can prevent you from having the courage to give tough feedback. It can give you, it can keep you from being too challenging or demanding on expectation or on performance. It can keep you from uh, really taking your own decision and rather trying to seek consensus and align everyone so that we maintain the relationships and everyone is included. So what we found in this uh, in this study is that the more that you look at the way that the values are enacted, you you'll always find a strength and a shadow. And it's just important to be aware of that because the more aware and the more visible we make these things, the higher chance we have of acting on them or acting differently. And so now that's what we're working on now is to explicit the behaviors of each one based on this learning to be able to uh, to, to make those uh, tensions more obvious and try to admit when there's some, some difficulties uh, behind the words and what it might mean. Uh, does the company have a culture of experimentation? Unfortunately, not yet. Uh, we have a culture of savoir-faire, of expertise. And it's. I think there's a lot of the case um, with a lot of other companies as well. You may have a bias on how your company developed its, its differentiating advantage. You know, for us, it was about industrial expertise, product innovation, technical expertise, and marketing and commercial um, uh, strengths. And so this is really the way the company is oriented. So when it comes to the spirit of dare and try and experiment, that's something that people still don't feel uh, that's safe to do and they'd rather that everything was polished and perfect. And so uh, this is another issue we have is if you have a company that really values quality, you often have to work on their ability to let go and, and, and experiment in a more agile way. And so that's a big, a big activity for us right now. Even more formidable that you were able to do this assessment and understand where the resilience comes from. It's a sort of an experiment. So tell me a bit, a bit about this experiment that you've uh, done and uh, how did you assess the company? What yes. kind of questions? What was yes. the outcome? Absolutely. So I, I would love to do a quantitative study. It is absolutely my next step, but I started with a qualitative one because when I had this belief and actually all the research confirms that resilience is actually a capacity you can build. It is not a gift given to you either as an individual nor as an organization. It is something that you need to build. And so given that, I really wanted to understand, well, how can you explicit what's behind that so that companies can work on something concrete, something that they recognize in their day-to-day, -day, something they see how they could maybe act on it versus feeling it's this impossible uh, uh, concept to tackle. And so that was why I was really uh, keen on trying to identify the factors of resilience. So we'll get to that in a minute. But the way I, I went about this research is that I went ahead and um, looked at resilience through these two axes, the ability to resist shocks and absorb some difficulties, and the ability to adapt proactively uh, to a situation around you. And so I did it with interviews, uh, an in-depth interview approach, where I both asked people to tell me stories about a time when um, they experienced the company's uh, resistance and when they experienced a company's adaptability. And that was great because not only did it give me real concrete examples of how this comes to life uh, and gave me some real um, 
cases to work with. It also helped them understand what I meant behind those words and what I was trying to get them to think about. So only after we talked about um, the different experiences in the company and how that went, we would try to get their assessment on where they felt the company defaulted to. Because the other thing that's important to know is that within any company, you're going to have a wide variety of people and experiences. And that's true. But often in a, a system can default to one way or another. One of the ways tends to be more comfortable. And I'll give you the example of a technology company tends to default to be more in the adaptability because the nature of how fast their world changes requires them to operate in that mode. So big or small, technology companies tend to really focus on adaptability. Whereas mining companies who have big investments and hard, hard, hard assets to absorb, they're much more likely to work on, on being able to absorb shocks and, and bad news and be able to uh, build their resistance. So it's, it's true that both you know, even though you may find examples that differ without, around the company, there tends to be a default. And in this company, it was very true that the company has a default to be more resistant, which might be in part due to its French heritage, which is a bit more in that uh, mode, but it was trying to be more adaptable. And it was actually really interesting because at the timing of the, the research that I completed, we had just completed an organizational transformation. So they were both sharing the history and their historical view of uh, what was happening, but also the fact that it can change. You know, just given the recent transformation the company had done, I heard people seeing things differently and saying, no, it's making progress. So like everything, you know, even a company's default is, is mobile and is able to change and be dynamic given very intentional efforts or very intentional action. What were the findings? So the findings, so the findings were that this company has built an incredibly long and proud history based on a resistant model being able to continually improve their operations little by little, and that behind uh, all that great, um, the, the benefits of that, of which there are many, the fact that it's a, a really long company, it's had great many, many, many years of growth and success, there was also this um, lack of an ability to, to catch some new trends and ongoing opportunities. And we had several examples in the company and even ones that I personally experienced where all the information was there, that this was a great opportunity for us and the company didn't manage to act on it. It's almost as if the system itself was resistant to not wanting to change to something too far out of the model. And, uh, and so it came out that yes, this is the way the company has historically uh, operated and that perhaps it's really been missing a lot on the softer components on the people side because it's a company that's really well run and well operated and really focused on the hard aspects of the business, but perhaps has been really under leveraged on tapping into the engagement of their team, thinking about the, the, the power of communication and helping people adapt to a situation proactively and has really uh, missed a little bit of, uh, of that side. So the, the real insight was we want to be a more adaptable company and to build resilience of this particular company, we need to go more that direction. And it was much more on the side of the software skills and the factors that I'll talk about a little bit of growth mindset and internal agility. Tell me a bit, a bit about the eight axes which you've then transformed into 36 different factors, right? Yes, exactly. And so then you build an assessment on it. Exactly. So I now have uh, I've leveraged the research on, on the other types of forms of resilience, community resilience, personal resilience, employee resilience, and what was available in organizational resilience. And through looking across these lenses, I was able to identify some factors, which then I tested and checked within my interviews to see if there was some, some examples, some real cases of these coming up. 
and was able to cross that um, to say, yes, these vectors are both consistent in the research and in a real life of a company. And in the end, I was able to identify eight factors of resilience that you can actively build and work towards in order to create that outcome. Because resilience at the end of the day is an outcome, not actually something you can do on its own. So the factors is what you can work with in order to improve it. So with that, I have um, first compelling strategy which is really about organizational values, as we just discussed. It's about having a strategic vision and one that has a distinct competitive advantage. And the next one is about strong fundamentals. This is really about strong assets, structuring processes, and a diverse portfolio in order to be able to adapt to various uh, dynamics in the market. The third one is dynamic planning and risk management, which will not surprise you because resilience is often about anticipating and being ready to have bad news come. This is the world we live in, that we can't live in a world of only good news. So having a strong uh, planning process or robust risk evaluation process, a surveillance of existing trends, you know, these kind of tools that are in most companies today, the more robust they are, the better chance you have at being able to adapt on the information as the world is changing. But a big one behind that bucket is transparent communication. And as I mentioned earlier, this is critical because without transparent communication about this might be difficult or this might be, you know, this might happen, if you don't leverage the honest assessment from your team, you're not able to adapt on time and you may not even know when bad things happen. And we were a company of only good news uh, in our company. And I really saw how that harmed the, the business's ability to adapt because no one wanted to mention when things weren't going well. And so transparent communication is a real aspect of risk management and dynamic planning in order to trigger the kind of conversations that would allow a company to act differently in the right time. And those are the hard ones. Those are the ones that the business uh, leaders that I talk to are quite comfortable with. So those are the ones I don't have to fight them on. The next group is actually even more important because the ones that are probably not present enough in any company today, which are the soft factors. And the soft factors of resilience, the first one's called positive coping. And positive coping is extremely important. It says that in order to help people move through anything difficult, you need to help them find a positive narrative, sense-making, as you often hear people call it now. How do I help them make sense of the situation, which then allows them to get into a mode of, I'm starting to accept that my world has changed, and I'm starting to move towards a new state. And so this is a critical step that so often is missed or under-leveraged. Um, the incredible transformative power of communication, which I really, really believe in. And this is a chance for you to also incite positive emotions in your team. So it could be, hey, we have difficult news. Here's how I help you uh, understand it and, and, and work with it. But it also could just be the, the, the recognition that humans need good news and positive emotions as well. So you could just take a moment to say, here's all the great work that's been done. Yes, times are tough, but look what we've accomplished. You know, These kind of positive emotions go a long way to build the individual resilience, which then ends up uh, creating the collective one. And the last one on that is the psychological safety and support. And this is where I mentioned earlier, having the ability for people to speak freely, feeling safe enough to say when things don't work or things aren't going well. If you have a culture of good news only, there's a real issue with your resilience because it is very likely you will not you will miss the weak signals that will enable you to act sooner and at the right time with the right resource. But if people don't feel comfortable saying, I need help, I'm struggling, I'm overwhelmed. Or I've I'm made underwater. the mistake. 
I've made a mistake. If people aren't able to do that, they both suffer, but so does the collective in the overall organization. And so uh, leaders are just starting to see how important transparency is both ways, not just for them to the employees, but also creating a situation where employees can be transparent with them. And there's just a few more if I keep going and then you can ask your questions. <laughs> the last uh, three is growth mindset. So growth mindset is all about learning and developing. And this is about having a culture that has a habit of asking, how could we have done it differently? How could we do it better? Because by nature, it creates this adaptability in the mindset of the team. And so it's really a, a big part of it. But so is it developing your employee skills and recognizing their accomplishments, which also give them that positive dose of uh, emotions. The last two is eternal, internal agility, which is really about leveraging and activating your employees to do their best to then activate and reflect the world they live in. If you have a company that remains very top down and employees are not engaged nor informed nor empowered to act on their own level, the overall organization is less resilient because you're not able to leverage as many eyes, ears and feet you have on the ground that could be helping you to find the right problems to solve or the right opportunities to capture. And then the last one is network power. And network power is really about connecting teams thoughtfully and leveraging and valorizing that because so often the beauty and the, the creativity comes from that aspect of the organization. And it's one that often we assume takes care of itself, but actually you can enhance it and make it even stronger if you have a diverse and inclusive culture where people are connected and eager to reach out. I see you like passion for the subject. Oh, I do. I love this topic. <laughs> No, but it's true. I really do believe it. And it's funny because after uh, after I identified these, I've seen them. I've seen them over and over again in the last year and a half since this was written. I, I see it all the time and I read it in all the articles and I see how many times this is true of this, uh, the need for this psychological support in order to deal with now this massive COVID crisis that every organization is trying to adapt to, let alone all the other uh, challenges that organizations are facing. How much resistance and how much adaptability is good? Because I imagine that mm. to the very low end put together, it doesn't work. Maybe you to the it. highest end, maybe we will never achieve that. Or it's not even desirable because they are just mm. opposite to each other. Yeah. Is there a good balance between uh, resistance and, and adaptability? It's a great question, and it's a difficult one to answer because, of course, uh, you need a certain level of resistance in order to have the, the financial stability, the assets in order to uh, build a strong company and have some of that continuity that can be quite useful to, to build the strength of your, uh, of your foundation. And yet, uh, as I've mentioned, I think the need for adaptability is even stronger these days. And so it's really about finding out where you're at. And therefore, where is it that you need to improve? And so that's why the next step is really to create a quantitative assessment to be able to help companies isolate which of these factors do I already have a, a, a strength where I can capitalize on it. Um, I'll give you an example of, of us. You know, the, the idea that we have very strong employee engagement inherent in the company was an under leveraged tool. And so now today, if we empower those engaged employees, you know, how much further we can go. So, so it's both a looking at your strengths and how do you capitalize on those to build your resilience as well as maybe things you're missing or things you don't do often enough. And it's really getting leaders awareness to these aspects in order to make a better decision based on the situation at hand. But in general, I would say everyone needs adaptability and the level of resistance really varies based on your objective. If you're really someone who 
who wants to be able to move quickly and maybe not uh, be as established or, or are not working the long term, you're really working a short term situation of capitalizing on growth, then you need a very adaptable system that's probably a little bit less in the resistance, knowing that it's much more about being able to adapt to the situation that's going to drive your success, where there are others where having deeper pockets, more financial stability is really critical to the cash flow and the operating model, then you are going to need a more resistant system. So often it's based on your context of the challenge at hand, but also your objective and what you're trying to accomplish. Makes a lot of sense, for sure. Um, how will you make your assessment available? How are you thinking about this? Because you are talking about making a quantitative one for companies to use. Mm. Is the first one available? Mm. If someone wants to find it, where can they find it? How can they use it? Yes. I'm going to make available to you uh, the eight factors so everyone can take a look at that and, and start working with it. As I mentioned, I started this process just doing uh, in-depth interviews with 20 leaders. I mean, anybody can do that. And I would recommend either a strategy department, an HR department, a transformation team uh, to look at this and see if they can do a deep assessment of their company, where they think they're at. The quantitative one is coming within a year. I will have it and, and I'll certainly let you know. Uh, but that will be extremely helpful because it'll allow you to pinpoint much more finely where where is the best opportunity for us to build our resilience, especially considering the current context and objectives? And, and that's something you'll be able to uh, to see more easily. But in my company, just to give you one example, so after um, after this this story of resilience was shared with the executive leaders and they, they bought into this being the new challenge for all companies, but certainly ours as well, uh, we really chose to focus on two. So I would argue that although there's many factors and there's a lot in there, um, certainly there's some aspects we're working on across all the factors because the thing about it is that resilience is about having more levers to pull. It's about having the capacity to two paradoxical, paradoxical things, being able to have levers to resist shocks and levers to adapt. And so given that you need both, uh, this, this uh, tool is helpful to do a full review and then hopefully to take one or two that you really work on closely. And for us this year, that's the internal agility and the growth mindset. And how are you going to approach that? Any actions oh. that you have in mind that you can share? Yeah, sure, sure, sure. So on the uh, on the agility one, the first one is, as I mentioned, we, we have a, a sense of having very strong uh, employee engagement, but it's true that this conversation hasn't been at this, the right level for the organization, given how important it is. And so rather than this being an HR topic that is handled just on a local level with their team, we've made employee engagement a group KPI that we're now following at the group level right next to net sales and cash flow. So it's now raised in the in the importance of the, of the executive team, but also all the leaders and all the company. And of course, with that, we've launched a, a new tool that's actually going to help us to track and monitor employee engagement and give that information to the not only the leaders, but also the line managers. So a big part of our program is to get this to be a topic that everyone's talking about and everyone understands the value of. There's been unbelievable research proving the link of employee engagement to business outcomes. So there's really a reason both for people and for our business to do this. And so we're raising the visibility of it. We're, we're providing them with a new tool, new information, and new ways to act on it. And then we're continuing to raise it in the, in the investment discussions because historically in our company, like many others, HR has not had a place at the table when it comes to levers of investment. And now we're really trying to find what are the right places we want to invest more holistically and more intensely as a way of developing our team's um, growth and ability to invest more in their learning and be able to invest in their engagement. And this is something that's now becoming a, a real topic. The same time you decide which brands and which markets you're going to invest in, we're saying which levers are we going to do to really engage fully our employees. 
growth mindset. This is something everyone talks about. How are you going to tackle it? Yeah, so growth mindset for us, so we're, we're doing it in uh, several ways. So one of the, the misnomers, I would say, about the growth mindset is that it's about training. Training is a, is a component of a growth mindset. For me, growth mindset is about getting everyone to learn on the job and learn through, uh, through different projects and missions. And so for me, I'm really focused on how do we encourage on-site, on-job learning and getting everyone this mindset of being curious and looking for continuous improvement. I mentioned to you earlier that we don't have a habit of experimentation in our uh, company. So we're launching uh, in the transformation team what we call proof of concept tests. And it's a way to take a topic that is big and difficult and make it small and manageable so that we can test and learn and see what happens. So one example when it comes to uh, internal agility is we're testing new ways of working. So we have one team that is testing 100% remote working, just one team. And we'll see how it goes. And so this is a way of you know, experimenting on a smaller population. You mobilize fewer people. It's less scary for all of your executives. And you're able to have a real test and learn approach to say, you know, we'll see what happens. And if we like it, we'll roll it out. And if we don't, we won't. Uh, so we're working on, on that. And uh, other than that, there's other things working on employee development, like I said, on the job learning. We're working on, on having more autonomous teams on industrial site. So we have a group of, of employees who are being trained to ask their own questions, make their own suggestions, actually solve things themselves rather than just having a, a, a hierarchical approach towards raising issues. So these are some different aspects in which we're really trying to get learning to happen for everyone and on the job and having training be the additional bonus that we invest in beyond that to make sure that people uh, evolve and grow. You are shaking some cultural norms for sure. <laughs> Uh, oh, yes. Do you think you would have had this uh, top-down support, executive support and sponsorship without the assessment, without the really diving deep into resilience and asking them the hard questions? I think that I benefit from the fact that I haven't. I do have an executive sponsor that really believes in this and pushes. But I think that I also benefit from the fact that the world is demonstrating over and over again how relevant this is. So yes, you know, I, I've really put a case together, and, and they're convinced, and, and we're moving on it. But every day you read any article and you see how fast the world is happening, how COVID is changing our ways of working and challenging workplace norms that have been in place since the 1900s. Uh, finally, things are really moving at another pace. So I think the benefit is, is that if you are able to find the right vocabulary, the right framework, it helps ground a difficult topic and makes it something people can talk about. And that's what this model has helped do is it helped create conversations and helped uh, get them to be aware of these different aspects. And then the world just keeps reiterating how important this is. And so I think that the combination allows us to really uh, take a 150 year old French company and shake it up a bit. I'm sure a lot of people want to follow your model. Any tips and tricks on how they can start on it? Mm. So they don't see it as an elephant, as a very big problem that they cannot tackle, but right. something that they can work on. Absolutely. I think the best way to do it is to really um, take a small team and, and, and talk about it and take the model and, and assess where you think there's opportunities. The best thing you can do is start by doing, learn by doing, experiment by having something specific like, uh, okay, we need to work on um, our diverse portfolio. We all recognize that we're too, you know, we're too concentrated on one, one category and raising that topic, but in the spirit of resilience versus just saying a business opportunity, it changes the nature of the conversation. 
It allows people to understand that there's a greater purpose behind your, the change you're driving, and yet you find a way to experiment and test it on a smaller level or in a smaller way. And the last thing I would say, you know, a couple conversations can go a long way just by asking people about where are we on this grid? Where are the opportunities? And people start to want to work on it because it becomes concrete and it becomes safer for them even to say, yes, let's try that. Thank you very much, Heidi. Thank it's you. Been a very, very passionate and very inspiring conversation. Thank you for the work you've done. Well, thank you for having me. And I'm happy to make all of that available. And, and we'll stay in touch because it's an interesting one for sure. For those who want to reach out and maybe ask you questions on how to implement this, if we share the, the, the assessment and the factors, how can they reach out? So I will make that available to you, um, how they can reach out to me directly. Mm -hmm. I'll share with you the key slides that, that those are in everyone's hands. And then I'll come back to you when I have the tool ready so that we can uh, we can share that with this community because I, I'm convinced that, uh, that being able to quantify this makes this even more actionable. Because at the end of the day, fundamentally and intuitively, we all know that resilience is important. But until you have something that makes it concrete and explicit, it's difficult to act. So this was really the key, the key insight I wanted to leave you with. And so honestly, uh, I'm really seeing that, you know, people have been talking a lot about transformation ever since digital transformation has started. I think we're going from transformation to resilience because I think the thing I'm most convinced of is that the companies that will survive and thrive are the ones that learn how to continue to adapt and, and who help their team be supported enough to accept that reality and work with it and feel energized and hopeful about how they can grow and how they can evolve instead of feeling only the burden and heaviness that the complexity of the world can provide. So I'm convinced that this is hopefully a tool to help them uh, find that balance. I'm sure. And then we can do another, once the tool is out, we can do another episode so you can love run people through it and they with can pleasure. understand exactly what to do. That would be great. Let's do that. Heidi, thank you so much for today. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Take care.